Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. My title here at the library is Digital Historian. And so that begs the question, what is digital history? And which word in my title, digital or historian, is the most important? On today's episode, Dr. Lauren Moulds joins me to help me figure out the answers to these big questions and resolve my existential crisis. Moulds is the head of digital scholarship at the University of Virginia Law Library. As many of our listeners might know, I spent nearly three years at the Law Library working on various digital projects with Moulds and others before I joined the team here at Mount Vernon. Recently, I stopped by to see the old gang and recorded this interview with Moulds in his office. Now, Moulds is actually a historian of 20th century America, but as you'll hear, his work on backyard barbecues and federal housing policy informs how he thinks about the power of digital history to recover hidden voices. You also get a sampling of some of the ongoing projects at the Law Library. Some involve early America, while others deal with some of the darkest moments of the 20th century. Now, before we begin, I just want to say thanks to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Conversations. We really appreciate your support. And be sure to tune in next week when historian John McCurdy joins us to discuss quartering the British Army in early America. But for now, let's get digital with Lauren Moulds. Hi, Jim. Hello, Lauren. So you're the head of digital scholarship here at the University of Virginia School of Law Library, but you're also a historian. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a historian of the 20th century, so not an early Americanist, but a lot of the work you've been doing here at the Law Library uh, as a consequence of this being Thomas Jefferson's university has been sometimes by necessity engaged with early America. And we'll, we'll talk about some of that down the line. But really, I thought we might start with, um, you know, why, uh, why did you want to become a historian? Because I know that when you were at Kalamazoo College, you were a student of our good friend and colleague, Dr. Charlene Boyer-Lewis. And okay. so you were originally an English major, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Started out as an English major. That's right. And so what was it about the experience you had at Kalamazoo that um, ultimately inspired you to pursue a professional degree in history. What's important about the well, Kalamazoo is I was an English major, yes, but I really was an American studies student. And the thing about K being a liberal arts school is you had a lot of flexibility in choosing the classes um, that you wanted to take. And what ended up happening was a lot of just, just happenstance. Uh, later on, I had to take a few history classes to sort of fill out the... American Studies degree, and I took a class with Charlene, and she is a fantastic teacher. She was very engaging, and the nice thing about Kay was we had really small class sizes, so we had a lot of interaction, and uh, it just made sense. I loved the idea of you know finding evidence, telling a story, talking about quirky things about the past. Some of the first papers I wrote, um, one was about um, sort of the, the, the culture of purchasing and building bomb shelters in the late, in mid to late 1950s backyard. And then the next paper I wrote and sort of really sort of cemented my interest was I started looking at uh, the backyard barbecue mm-hmm. about sort of participatory fatherhood in these white suburbs about guys who were... Uh, have to do something to sort of confirm their masculinity. And so that ended up being my master's thesis when I eventually went to grad school, but at the sort of preliminary work I did in grad school. And then um, I also did a paper that was less fun in terms of 
in terms of quirkiness, but it was still, I think, a pretty, it was a pretty seminal piece in sort of my thinking about um, government uh, interaction with experts and with uh, um, the sort of academics and, and experts. Uh-huh. Per, in the 1950s and 60s, I looked at um, sort of how poverty was understood in government policy, mm-hmm. and that sort of informed uh, what I would eventually do in... In, in grad school. And Charlene has, has long been a, a mentor of yours, so what, what was she like as a professor? Well, she, she brings a lot of energy to the classroom. She's a very energetic person and I think very passionate about um, uh, how she approaches a, a, a class and really focuses a lot on engaging with students. Um, the, the subject matter is also really critical. She's very she's very she sort of it teaches a great deal of empathy for these, the people that are in stories that aren't necessarily always told mm-hmm. um, as sort of the sort of you know sort of the primary narrative of history, mm-hmm. right? As a, you would, you go through these classes and you try to focus on a lot of the underrepresented voices uh, that you sort of may have missed in the survey, mm-hmm. uh, and not simply sort of uh, great men or great ladies. It's also just sort of a lot of individuals as well. It's about um, what it meant to be. Alive, and sometimes when you find these quirky things about, like I said, bomb shelters or or barbecues, it tells a very important story about that moment, mm-hmm. and you can really get at these individual stories about why dads wear asbestos gloves and have to have giant flames to uh, fit in at home. Sort of gets into yeah. uh, what it meant to be geographically separated yeah. in the fifties, right, for these white families. So. I mean, Charlene. Charlene really gave me a um, a passion for history and finding um, relevancy in individuals. A lot of granularity and looking at a lot of these different voices that aren't typically part of you know these capital H histories. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you eventually went to grad school, studied twentieth century history, and you know you said as you said your master's thesis was on. Um, backyard barbecues and I think your dissertation was on federal housing policy if I remember correctly yeah it was about policy is that's that's the elevator pitch it was really the dissertation was about trying to understand in the interwar period up through the 50s why the federal government became so invested in people owning their own home mm-hmm it's not sort of a typical way globally that people were living. Mm-hmm. It was really pushing to have individual families in owner-occupied homes. And I traced it to, you know, during the, the First World War and immediately following where there was this effort to create better environments for individuals to live in. It's a very progressive idea that if you improve people's environment, if you improve how they live, where they live, they will become more American, better people. And mm-hmm. so, like, uh, houses aren't cheap. Uh, saving for a house is hard. Um, immigrants don't necessarily have a great deal of money to buy their own home and live like the good, solid Americans everyone wants them to live like in the 1920s. And so there's a series of movements that I study that just basically are trying to understand how prof- professional experts, these progressives, started working with manufacturers, uh, nonprofits, to convince 
federal entities that housing was something the government should help make affordable. Mm -hmm. And they did this through a series of campaigns to basically promote housing, owning your own home. They would go build model homes in cities and have Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts serving cookies and giving tours. Uh, They'd have plans and fairs and all these sort of things to you know, make housing seem very, very attractive. Owning yeah. your own home, very attractive. And what ended up happening was Herbert Hoover, when he was Commerce Secretary and even before that, became sort of the preeminent leading figure in this movement. He worked for this private campaign, the Better Homes for America campaign, um, and... Uh, was working tirelessly in the in the 20s to promote um, housing. And then as Secretary of Commerce, he ends up actually really working to revolutionize the role commerce played in regulating how things were made. So mm-hmm. they were testing products like concretes and brick and uh, studs, roofing materials, foundations. So we were paying, as taxpayers, we were paying a department within the government to figure out the cheapest and best way to make houses. So we were paying money to have better construction Mm -hmm. techniques. And what we end up finding in the Second World War is all of those techniques to how to quickly build houses and build buildings is perfected on on mass for soldiers and bases and all that sort of thing. And these companies who are private contractors who are going and building bases and all these other things become, you know, basically immediately ready following the war yeah. to start building these houses. The Suburbanation of America. At yeah. Point. And then sort of the most boring chapter at the end is, you know, how we sort of revolutionized uh, financial instruments like mortgages mm-hmm. um, to help pay for those houses. Yeah. GI Bill and that sort of thing. Um, obviously a huge component of this was um, recognizing that there were certain people that were privileged to own houses during this period and certain who were not. Mm-hmm. And I do get into redlining, but um, there are other historians who have done a much more comprehensive job looking at um, these the, the federal government's role in, in f- funding housing mortgages. Well, it's, it's, what's interesting is, is you know, that it's a clear trajectory, I think, from... Well, not clear. That's not fair to say that. But, you know, a clear distinction between the 18th century... That we're we're thinking about at Mount Vernon and other places in early America, where the emphasis is on the family farm. You know, there is some mm-hmm. urbanization in major cities like Charleston or Philadelphia, uh, uh, Boston, and there is some regulatory frameworks there. Especially, you know, in the seventeen nineties when everything catches fire, right. and then right. you start to see fire regulations pop up. But there's no you know sort of emphasis on suburbanization or facilitating. Um, uh, single-family homes uh, until you know the mid-19th century when you start thinking about homesteads and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But then the, the acceleration of the uh, population to urban centers and beginning in the late 19th century and then, you know, is complete by the 20s, you see where there's an active participation by the, the federal state then at that point to encourage the kind of movement That's and right. that kind of turning the cities into a locus of of uh, population which no 18th century American would ever recognize or even want. Right, and I, I do think that there's this, there is 
definitely an overarching theme that cities are bad. They're not the place to live in. They're not healthful. You're yeah. too close together. They're unhealthy. Right? They're, yeah, you know. And, and, you know, and I think a, a big part of that is there, there's a big xenophobic part of it where there are, you know, immigrants don't integrate because they're surrounded in these sort of condensed areas by other immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, they drink wine with dinner, you know, yeah, you need the vapors because they're drinking alcohol. But um, that, I, yeah, I, I, it's like in the 1840s and 50s when the Irish are immigrating in numbers. And that's the, exactly the, the nativist movement pops up in in major cities. Yeah, and I think you you know you're getting back to the 18th century, early 19th century. There is always this, this sort of mythic or Jeffersonian vision of how space or countryside can improve you. And I think they really do attach that to that vision that if you are connected to a place. That's your own, and you're mm-hmm. invested in it. And you're indebted to it. You will be a more stable figure if you're in debt to a house. Then you want to improve it. Yeah, your family will be in a better place, and you will be more permanent. Mm-hmm. You will be there as opposed to renting in a city. You'll be out in the suburbs or a place that can has the space to build an owner-occupied home with a yard, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Obviously, yeah. this is a little bit reductive, but it, well, yeah. it really is this very progressive push in the early 20th yeah. century to make people better uh, and, you know, for better or worse. Well, it builds on a lot of the same Enlightenment ideas you see in the 18th century because there's this idea that you improve the land and therefore you you... I guess improve the property value, but you also improve the productivity. You know, now we're transitioning from an agricultural to a manufacturing-based society. But, you know, the in, but in terms of improving the land, now you're you're saying, well, we're we're creating stability with the family home. Uh, people are building equity and wealth in their in their own properties, and so now they are free to go off to the factory to, or to wherever to the office to do a job that then feeds into a more nationalized economy. Well, you said it better than I did. Well, <laughs> and I don't even study this stuff. So. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> but at some point, so at some point, as you're working on your dissertation um, here at UVA, uh, I should say we're we're recording this at UVA right now. So hello to all our UVA friends. It's a land of milk and honey. A land, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the mountains just out in the distance here. Um, <laughs> land of milk and honey. Yo, Jefferson's watching us over. Over our shoulder here. He's um, always watching he's somebody. Al- he's always watching somebody. You, um, you just did. You have an interest in technology before um, you began your your graduate studies, or is that something that you came to uh, as a consequence of your studies here uh, in grad school? Yeah, I, I, I've always tried to figure that out. I think I had this sort of nerd dumb to me: video games and building websites and that sort of thing that. Um, uh, maybe somewhat competent in on these technologies. No, but I think it, 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 in a concrete way, I was broke and in grad school and knew I could work on some of these projects um, competently at the Virginia Center for Digital History, the now defunct VCDH, um, and. I began working on several digital projects there. Uh, this was after Valley of the Shadow, so it was some of the stuff that yeah. sort of informed like the History Engine and many of the early yeah. projects that are now at the uh, Digital Scholarship Lab at University of Richmond. So the, the Valley of the Shadow is the was one of really the first major digital archival projects, mm-hmm. did, really first digital history projects. That's right. At uh, that scale. Yeah, at that yeah. scale. Is that, uh, Ed Ayers, uh, William Thomas. Um, mm-hmm. and that appeared... 
Relative, well, Ed started playing around with this stuff. Late right 90s, after, really. Yeah, right after the, the birth of the, of the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. but then Valley of the Shadow, you know, the, two, the archive looking at two communities of the Civil War, popped up shortly thereafter, and it was kind of like, okay, this is, this is what's possible, you know. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, with the Valley of Shadow, what was neat about it was that it was done with an idea that there was an argument to be made. It wasn't simply about very sort of discrete provision of documents for a classroom. Mm-hmm. It was marshalling a whole trove of documents in the service of telling a story, um, which was, you know, so Valley of Shadow is about two different counties during the Civil War and looking at... You know, one in Pennsylvania and one in Virginia mm-hmm. on the border. And, uh, both sides of the war and looking at the newspapers and a lot of these records from the time period to sort of get at how closely linked these communities mm-hmm. were, even though they had ended up, you know, geographically and politically on two very different sides. Um, and again, like as I said, the the the, the compelling part of uh, these of uh, Valley of the Shadow in that early phases of digital history, as we call it, was that it was using digital evidence, digital evidence based in materials, mm-hmm. uh, to to tell a story, to make an argument which is, you know, sort of to this day informs how we do our digital archives and digital history. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, I guess let me ask you a, um, a comps question then. Uh, okay. <laughs> just to, you know, frighten you. So if, if I had to press you for a definition of digital history, what would that be? I think the simple answer is, is you know, doing stuff on the interwebs with history. Um, but I think broader, it's... Uh, it's a whole set of tools and methodologies that uses the power of computers to do what historians do, mm-hmm. and that's tell histories. Yeah. The thing that's different is the scope of the materials that can be brought into an argument. It's the, how widely accessed those materials are and those arguments are. So I don't know if that's a particularly eloquent explanation of what digital history is, but I think the one key part about doing digital history as opposed to sort of like simply digitizing rare materials Mm -hmm. is that we do so to tell a story and to try and understand the frameworks in which these documents were created, the people who created them, and to try and understand uh, a little bit more about the past. What's neat about digital history and about digital archival work is we can use technology to open up documents and find patterns within a huge set of documents that we couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I say there's an, there's an argument of structure designed to convey or designed to provoke particular research questions um, or elicit certain types of potential spin-off projects that are um, that come out of that labor. Yeah, I think so. I, there's probably several things I could say to that. So again, it's important to say that you know my training as an historian informs the sort of my day job. Yeah. So really... and actually play with that a little bit because I think you know that's something that I think is important to talk about um, because we. You know, you're you're in a kind of 
hybrid role. You're not a traditionally trained archivist. Uh, you're not a traditionally trained special collections librarian, but you're bringing that historian's mentality to the kind of library work that uh, not only serves patrons, but then also advances you know, sort of your own scholarly agenda. Yeah, I think that's right. So the two sort of primary missions I have as the digital archivist or head of digital scholarship here within the special collections at the law school is the first one is about simply access and pre preserving our documents, preserving our materials, and promoting access to them. So making them more widely available to um, a ver the variety of patrons that we have, which is our faculty and students, to the wider university community, and so to, to the sort of global mm -hmm. scholarly community as well. Um, and the second part of what we're trying to do is sort of much more relevant to my background as an historian is to think of ways to create, no, to create tools that open up these documents to a variety of audiences of different expert levels. So we have, you know, we have people who are absolutely legal historians and experts and know exactly what they want. Um, and there's lay historians and genealogists and students who have different expertise mm -hmm. and different interests. And so what we're trying to do is build these platforms for accessing our materials in a variety of ways, mm -hmm. what we call multimodal entry points. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we want our materials to be accessible to a wide community of people. Uh, and so we try to develop analytical tools, interfaces that... Um, make it available to a wide range of people. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what's a concrete example then of something you've built here that, that, tries to, that strives to achieve those ends? Well, so the one that we've been pushing and, you know, the project that you were instrumental here when you were the postdoc at the law school is the Scottish Papers, which is a project where we have a host of papers from... Their, their publications from the Scottish Court of Session, which is the highest, this is the supreme civil court in Scotland from basically the 18th through the 19th century. Um, they're these records that at face value are yeah, pretty hard to dive into. Mm -hmm. uh, they're basically legal proceedings of a court. And when you say that to someone, their eyes sort of glaze over and it's really difficult for us to say oh these are actually pretty neat because in reality they are <clears throat> what's buried within these are depositions buried within them is statements from individuals and really these narratives of these interactions of people who are using the court who are using the law for redress and are laying out their lives in front of the court and you cover issues of marriage and divorce and elections and trade and inter uh, transatlantic commerce to slavery to agriculture, uh, insurance fraud, just anything that someone is trying to get something out of somebody else. And they're looking for, they're, here, they're records of people interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And what's fantastic about these records is they have depositions, people's words recorded in print these are printed records yeah so we can use computers to read that printed text it's not manuscript it's not handwriting it's printed text and so if i back up a little bit you know and sort of trying to think about why the scottish papers 
is something that we're so proud of that I think you and I are so proud of and, and our colleagues here are so proud of yeah. is Randy Flaherty and Cecilia Brown. And a, a lot of student workers. Yeah, a lot of students. <laughs> our histories, our narratives just sort of miss the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in telling histories, synthesis requires that we lose a lot of those voices in service of making a manageable narrative. Yeah. But it's important to keep in mind that history is comprised of, is moved by all kinds of people, ordinary and powerful, and that with digital history, we can open up those texts through indexing, through searching, that provides windows into those lived experiences of, of past people, mm-hmm. past people's lives. And so... Um, What's so exciting about the Scottish Papers is they've sat in our basement for 30 years, and many of the volumes that we've working with the University of Edinburgh and several other institutions in Scotland is they may have sat on the shelf for centuries. Yeah. Uh, not opened except by a very limited set of people with very arcane knowledge, in essence, the ability for them to know exactly, like an individual case or some published report that they know they want. But what I think is so... what I What I love about... From my early days, as we talked about Charlene, that excitement, that quirkiness. I think what's so cool about history is discovery. It's about mm-hmm. finding new things. It's about unpacking these stories that we never knew about. And um, and the struggles of people in the past. And, and trying to uncover, to, to critically think about, to describe the forces and the contexts that shaped their lives and the decisions that they made... Uh, what the Scottish Papers does is it lets us, in their own words, describe what they're experiencing. Yeah. And then what we can do is take those little pieces of evidence and and try and understand what's going on in that case, what's going on in Edinburgh, what's going on in Virginia, and what's going on in the Atlantic. And when we put that together with the narratives that we've already we're, we already know and the histories that have been written by other historians we can really start to have these really visceral, granular understandings of people's lives, as well as knowing the grand arc mm-hmm. and sort of being able to, to talk about what is happening in the 18th century. Yeah. And I, I think at some point I, I do plan to have a... We'll do a, we'll do a show, I think, about that uh, project, because I think, you know, as you, just, as you just well mentioned, a lot of those cases in that collection deal with commerce in Virginia in Washington's time. And even though Washington worked with the Robert Carey Company... Uh, almost exclusively for his transatlantic business, um, the Scots control the Chesapeake, and a lot of the mm-hmm. litigation we see in that project yeah. deal with the consequences of in, in the colonial period and in the early republic of uh, Scots um, and Virginians uh, negotiating contracts, uh, partnerships, and, and, and you know they show up in court when when things go wrong, that's and right. that's where that's where the fun begins. And so I, you know I think at some point I think. We will talk about that project in more detail, and but and so what I want to get at from there, though, at this point is, based on on this discussion, is you know how you know a lot of historians are used to starting a project in the traditional sense of I'm going to write a book or I'm going to write a a an article, and so I'm going to do my research, I'm going to type it up, I'm going to submit it for publication, mm-hmm. peer review. Mm-hmm. How does one? begin a digital history project. Is there analogies between 
the quote-unquote analog uh, process? Uh, or is it, does it require a different mindset? Is this something that, that uh, someone who's looking to dip their toe in mm -hmm. the digital history world could get up to speed on very quickly in a, in, a, in a way that would allow them to do a meaningful project without having to worry about coding a PHP or a SQL database or mm -hmm. things like that. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, just like any award-winning history, it requires a giant pot of money and, <laughs> yes. yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of free time yeah. and no one knocking on your office door. Right. No. Um, in all seriousness, I think, you know, I, my role as an archivist requires me to work with what I have in hand, what yeah. I have in my collections. So I don't get to go and say, well, this I'm super interested in barbecues. We don't have a great deal about the barbecue at the yeah. Law Library Special Collections. Really? There's no legal <laughs> decks no. catching on fire? No, and, and I'm very much into sort of homebrewing and the history of homebrewing um, beer, and we have about three letters from one of our former faculty members in the 19th century about viticulture, and that's the extent of our yeah. homebrewing materials here. So again, as an archivist here, I have to work with my own collections, but I think your question gets to a larger point about to, what does it mean to do digital history as opposed to, you know, sort of analog history? Um, and I, I don't really know if there is that stark of a divide, mm -hmm. uh, especially now when, you know, even when I started grad school, what, 15 years ago, 14 years ago, I, we used digital tools to to find our evidence, to search for our evidence, to digitize it, to marshal it, to reorganize it, to describe it, all of that sort of stuff, we use digital tools. Um, and even more so now, it's, it's very much integrated into the process of being an academic, being a scholar, even just being a person. Yeah. So I don't know if the digital divide between, you know, doing digital history in capital letters and history is really that different. Um, well, let me, let, me, let me ask a follow-up question then, because you and I have both been in situations where we've presented to graduate students or undergraduate students or, you know, even, even post-grad, you know, colleagues, mm -hmm. and they're looking to get into digital history or they recognize that they should at least be familiar with it, and it's there. There's a real sense of, um, I mean, I guess terrified is probably too strong of a word. But there is a, a sense of distress that, mm -hmm. especially amongst the younger, or younger colleagues who are still in graduate school, that if they don't engage with this, that they're going to be behind, that it will compromise their career prospects, um, that that everything they've worked for is going to fall apart because they don't know how to build a database or they don't, mm -hmm. you know, they don't know how to build a website or th something of, of that nature. Yeah, so I think the, the, the my first reaction, of course, is that this conversation isn't one to discuss the Academy's uh, <laughs> uh, value, uh, valuing digital scholarship in Let's terms, lay it on the table right now. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of promotion <laughs> and tenure. Um, but I do think um, you're absolutely right, and we have this uh, we have this sort of gut reaction to think about these youths who have digital um, fluency, and yeah. really that's not the case. Quote unquote digital natives. I mean, they use them, digital natives. They use these tools to communicate with uh, themselves and to understand who they are and all that sort of thing. That's absolutely true. But I mean, they're not building these tools. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, really, 
when we t when we're trying to teach a student, or even ourselves, when we're trying to build, make an argument, you you use evidence, mm -hmm. and you put it together, and you try and support it with you know background knowledge. Yeah, and you, that's what history is. And I think in, in when we create these digital tools, sometimes you don't get to see the pattern. Sometimes it's too hard to visualize the data you have without a computer. Yeah, and other times you know you've got to go full on analog and explain what you're trying to do, not your process per se, but like what this map means. Yeah. And I think the, the, the hybridity of that is really essential to, um, to, you know, sort of leveraging what is available to us as historians. I don't I'm not saying anything particularly great, but I do think that when we have all of these wonderful digital tools available to us, we can write better histories. And it's just a matter of showing students mm -hmm. on the ground that they can do it. Yeah. You know, uh, Ed Ayers is constantly talking about this class in which he had students take uh, a late 19th century, early 20th century African-American newspaper and go through it and read it and transcribe pages and then write a short essay about yeah. what they read yeah. about in that one year of this local Richmond African-American newspaper. And they just had to immerse themselves in that very limited context and sort of the greater experience and greater knowledge they did in terms of preparing for that class. And they were able to make digital history. They were movers of history yeah. and they were historians themselves simply by reading a newspaper mm -hmm. and using a tool that's very, very simple. It's basically, here's some newspapers, you can see them here, and here's the essay I wrote. And that's not daunting. Yeah. If And then, again, you get these students who all of a sudden can say, well, I have something on the web. I wrote this. It's yeah. my work, and it's based on a digital project that I had to do. And I think that's super exciting. And I think that's sort of the springboard into what we do in sort of modern digital history, I'd yeah. say, is these opportunities for... Um, just as it's difficult to write an essay in an English class or a history class, and it's a, it's a learned practice, mm -hmm. so is doing the digital work. Yeah. And I think all of those things use the same sort of skills. It's about making an argument. It's about critical thought. It's about trying to use, make an argument eloquently and succinctly. And I think it's all the same thing. Yeah. And, and and the tool itself isn't the end of the process. It's a means to accomplish something. Well said. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so we get so obsessed with are we doing something that is the technology innovative as opposed to are we doing good history? Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely right, yeah. Um, you know, that's, I think that's a big issue is we get so wrapped up in thinking about, well, it, this is a cool tool, but a, but great. What does it do and how mm -hmm. does it help me you know, answer the research question I'm asking? Yeah. Um, and ultimately, how do I translate that into something that, that people can benefit from and learn from? I think so. Just as um, just as the students are at University of Richmond, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and so, how you know, how are you? You, know, you let's talk about your career trajectory because you know, the olden days it was the you went to graduate days, yeah. school and you then you got the tenure track job and you 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 got your tenure and then you were mm. you were gravy for life. Uh, but so, what was the what was the attractiveness of the job here that kind of led you to think well? I've got these skills. I've worked on these projects. Mm -hmm. um, here's a potential opportunity. Why don't I, I gravitate into this, this side of the profession? Well, I think the most important thing is they're willing to pay me money. 
Yeah. <laughs> we will pay you money. We will give you benefits. And yes, please come work for us. Well, yes. Uh, so exactly. yeah, my 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 son was born. My first kid was born in um, February, and um, I didn't know how I was gonna, you know, you know, support my family. Pay the bills. How I was gonna help, you know, you know, put food on the table. Yeah. And then. You know, they they hired me at the law school, but in all seriousness, I think. Um, but that's an important part of it, right? I mean, a lot of our colleagues used to. I mean, I, you know, I haven't talked about my kids on the podcast, but I was in the same boat, right? I, yeah, uh, we, yeah. I had kids in grad school. You did. I mean, that's more and more common these days, and so you've got a that fact. That's a huge factor in thinking about how you're going to shape your career. Well, you know, the thing is, is you get with grad school, you get so pot committed. Um, and you get, you're so dedicated to it and there was no, there was never a thought that I didn't want to continue being an historian that I didn't want to finish getting a degree and all that sort of thing. That, that, that was never a question, but like the realities of what I was increasingly finding myself through a series of internships and through smaller jobs is I was good at this stuff. I liked doing this stuff. Um, and it made me feel like I was really exercising my better faculties. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when a real paying job came up that said you can do all those things and also you know help your family eat that's cool yeah (laughs) Uh, yes please so i think that was one of the biggest factors but again it gets to this stuff makes me happy it's fun i'm constantly learning i'm constantly experimenting there's always room for improvement there's always um uh, new things to experiment with. Uh, there's always a conference to go and show off what we're doing. I really enjoy my colleagues. There's just there's there's a very little downside to a paying job mm-hmm. that you enjoy showing up to and that you're not terrible at. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like living the dream. <laughs> but but it, uh, you, one of the things you're getting at, though, I think too, is that you're talking about your colleagues. Is that a lot of this work is is contingent upon collaboration? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so so talk about that aspect of it, because, you know, it, it's sort of a myth that historians work in silos. Yes, we, quote-unquote, traditional historians spend a lot of time in the archives, mm-hmm. but, you know, those of us who do this kind of work do the same thing. Um, and the perception, it might be that we're sitting alone at a desk writing a book for six months out of the year and not talking to anybody, but and, but that's not true either. I mean, we, we know from being in the field and working in this life that's right. that... that we are constantly leveraging each other's skills, but it, but in terms of building a digital project, that's even more so because you are bringing together people's different expertise, Absolutely. whether they be historically or technologically or archivally or you know in a special collections, and then marshalling that those different professions to create something worthwhile. I think there's, it's most certainly successful or at least most successful through a collaborative work with with people of different expertise as you said i mean we can i can enumerate any number of projects that you know i could bring the skills that i bring which is you know i am, can build out these databases i can host these technologies i can put make it look pretty and all these sort of things i can do those things and i can think about how is the best way to present this information mm-hmm. to scholars and to a whole range of audiences i can do that but like the Scottish Papers, that's not my area of expertise. It's about two hundred years too early. Yeah, I could care less. <laughs> you know, I had to be convinced. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so like, uh, for for me to say, 
I implicitly understand the value of these materials. Mm-hmm. This is so cool. This sort of material, these, the, the voices of these individuals, windows into the past, as we like to call it, is cool. That, this is what drives historians and it's what makes histories, is the evidence that we're presenting. I can tell you that. But at the end of the day, I needed to work with you and Randy to sort of get that context, to yeah. get that wider global framework that makes these papers that convinces a wider that the the people who are looking at it, these are really valuable. Here's yeah. why, and then you know Kate was instrumental. Kate Bedoris, who's uh, another librarian at the law school, um, who's a lawyer, and so and we are not. So she was really critical yeah. in helping us try and understand where these how these cases were made, the terminology that was in them. She was incredibly talented at being able to distill the most important parts of these cases quickly and yeah. effectively and was instrumental in sort of our interpretive process. So that's four people right there, yeah. plus countless other students and grad right. students who were instrumental in enter- inputting that data, vetting that data, doing the scanning and all that sort of thing. Same for the 1828 catalog, which is our digital library of the first uh, the first legal collection in the University of Virginia's library. It took uh, three grad students, postdoctoral fellows to go through and look at you know, what books do we have? What's the most critical mm-hmm. information? How are we going to make this pretty? How are we going to make this usable? And that's just two projects. Yeah. And so to get to that collaborative idea is, I, there's not a single project I've done here alone um, because I think it, and I know demonstrably that they were better because of the everyone else's input. Mm-hmm. But I think about in grad school, we relied, and even as a professional historian, we rely on other people to read our work, yeah. to give us criticism. We can't even publish something without our colleagues examining it and vetting it and evaluating it and offering their insight. And eviscerating it sometimes. Well, eviscerating <laughs> it. Denying our grants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you shall remain nameless. So. <laughs> but, but I do think that it, it's uh, the work that we do here really is benefits from us thinking that uh, it's it's a big old house. Well, it takes a village, and, it, and you got to leverage. You got to know what you don't know in a yeah. lot of ways. Which is much mostly what I what I recognize for pretty much everything. I just don't well, know. as long really as you're much, as long as you're uh, content in your ignorance. Then. Content in my ignorance. <laughs> I don't know if it's contentedness. It's just you know, re- resigned to my ignorance. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you found your happy place. It sounds like. So, um, so what you know? We, we sort of talked about the Scottish Papers and the eighteen twenty eight catalog project, and, and you know, we, uh, we can certainly post. Well, those links to those projects are in the bio, my bio on the the web page for our podcast. So, if folks are so inclined, please do take a look. But um, what, so, what are the big projects you're working on right now here at the old uh, UVA Law Library that um, are putting all of these skills to the test and who are and and require collaboration as usual. Well, one is a confidential project I can't tell you about that's dominating the vast majority of my bandwidth. So I mean, we're le- we're going to leave that part in just to you know, give people a taste, but um, we can't tell you about it, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. In fact, we have another boring project, actually. Um, so w- w- as you think about what it means to do digital work, mm-hmm. technology is constantly changing. Technology is constantly upgrading and yeah. being updating and being better and all this sort of thing. We're in a major update. We're just sort of in a complete conversion from one 
um, older system to a new system that requires a lot of massaging and a lot of work. Um, so we're moving from Drupal 7 to Drupal 8, and a lot of that requires migrating data and rebuilding systems and that sort of thing. Drupal is a content management system that a lot of, a lot of digital humanities projects rely on. We have another project. Uh, it's, a, again, an upgrade project, but we... Uh, one of our first sort of flagship digital projects we did at the law library was what we call IMTFE, which was, stands for the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. We have uh, documents from attorneys on both sides of the war crimes tribunals that took place in Japan following the Second World War. We, about, it's almost 10 years now, digitized the entirety of those collections, about 75,000 objects. 75,000 objects. And the new version of this project is we received um, more papers related to those tribunals uh, that were not the Class A tribunals, which were the sort of major leaders. They were the B and C that took place in Yokohama. Um, we received a, a series of papers from individuals who were involved with those. So we've expanded the scope of um, the Tokyo War Crimes Trials, now called the Pacific War Crimes mm -hmm. Trials. And we're working to uh, add all of these papers in. In fact, one collection, the Von Bergen Papers, which you're familiar with, mm -hmm. which is a particularly gruesome set of papers, is entirely digitized, entirely transcribed. And, um, these are, and these are the papers of the chief prosecutor in the Yokohama Trials. That's right. And those will become available um, within the next few weeks. That's in the last set of sort of evaluations, and we've got to make it, you know, all those interface things that make it pretty yeah. and understandable. But this is a concrete example, right, where you have one project, and this is kind of the, 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 the upside, but also the downside in some ways of... Um, of digital projects is that unlike a book which is sort of fixed in time mm -hmm. and yeah you can go back and do a, a, mm -hmm. a second edition or write a new uh, preface or something like that here in, a, in in this sense this is a project that it was by and large completed but then you get another collection that comes in and that, that changes the dynamic and it mm -hmm. sort of forces you to reconsider the scope, but also the the thrust. Yeah, I think a, you know we can project. juxtapose the PWCT as it's now called, or will be called soon, with another collection we have called the Courtroom Sketches of Ida Libby Dengrove, mm -hmm. which uh, we received from uh, six thousand sketches from the Dengrove family. Um, she was the court reporter for NBC in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. she, she was the excuse me the court this courtroom artist for NBC in. The 70s, and she saw mm -hmm. a lot of these really incredibly cool cases: John Gotti, John Lennon, um, Son of Sam, all these sort of things. And right. she, mm -hmm, and she did the courtroom sketches for it. And the family, this probably about five years ago, was looking for a place to, you know, safely preserve this really awesome, really unique set of sketches that offered insight into what the courtroom looked like, what mm -hmm. the juries looked like, who is, and what the judges looked like. Um, in the 70s in New York um, and, a, and a place that was able to fully digitize them and make them available online. But again, that's a very discreet collection. We yeah. don't know. Every so often we'll get one or two uh, sketches from, from Ms. Dengrove will be donated to us. 
um, and were you very, very happily included into the, the collection. But that's really quite static. Right. And we don't know that we'll be doing much besides making sure that it's always available. And if there's security issues with the site or anything like that, we're addressing those. But so it's a self-contained kind of project. Yeah. With PWCT, however, its value comes from the Pacific War Crimes Trial. Its value comes from how much data we can provide to it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we really are excited about is if we are the, if let's say we're the landing page, if we're the hub for digital archives about the Pacific War Crimes Tribunals, we want more stuff. Yeah. Either here, either for physical donations to the library, which then we can we can preserve, we can catalog, we can process, digitize, and, and, mm -hmm. and make available online. But we would gladly work with other institutions. Yeah. Um, in fact, our collection is about the Second World War, immediately following the Second World War. Stanford is starting a much larger project about um, military tribunals and human rights laws. And ours is a collection that is relevant to that project, and we are happily going to share all of our images yeah. through IIIF, which is a, 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 a image delivery system that allows for sort of a very easy interfacing between mm -hmm. systems. We are going to have Stanford use our materials. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think so. It'll be part of this much larger project. Um, ours is going to be very specifically about yeah. uh, Japan, um, the Second World War, in the, the, the trials afterwards, but Stanford thinks it's relevant to them, yeah. so we happily want to be part of that. And on the other hand, if someone comes up and says, I have, you know, if Harvard or, you know, University of Chicago or someone like yeah. that says, in our archives, we have six boxes about a prosecutor mm -hmm. or a defense attorney that was part of one of these trials, could we be part of this project? Right. A consortium completely makes sense because then you can start cross-searching between collections looking for themes, looking for individuals as they appear in different places. Perhaps you get uh, someone from each side of the case, each side of the court, uh, the trial, excuse me. You have someone that's on the defense and some, uh, someone that's on the prosecution. I don't know. But that the value of that material is the ability to have more and more and more in the same place. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily in our platform, but linked together. Well, linked together, it creates greater research opportunities. I mean, there's something, there's a, a project that's underway right now, and I, I can't, I, I don't know if it's public yet, so I, I won't mention it, but there is a, there is a, uh, an effort right now by a few institutions to aggregate uh, data related to the slave trade. Mm -hmm. right? And right now, all, all of these data sets, all this information about people and the ships and the, and the slave owners and where the enslaved people came from exist in sort of discrete separate piles, but then if you create a, uh, a, a federal union, you might say, yeah. since we're, we're a podcast about early America, you, you create a central repository where you're feeding that stuff into. That's right. You, you create these new... Uh, opportunities to link different individuals together in ways that you may not have thought unless that these things were brought together. I think that's right. And so an archival project that's trying to trace um, enslaved persons um, and caught up in, in the slave trade, it's the perfect project for that because yeah. you can use these tools to disambiguate these individuals. You can connect them across collections. You can see where they are. You can use these digital tools that map them geospatially, geotemporally, mm -hmm. I think it's really neat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that project. Uh, I think that's 
That's pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it should be pretty, yeah. Sorry to be coy about it, of course, but, um, you know, we... It's just like when uh, when someone's writing an article and we know about it, we're not gonna we're not gonna broadcast the thesis because um, you know we we want them to have that triumphant moment when it gets published. But suffice to say, this is something that uh, we at Mount Vernon are looking at pretty closely as a sure. as a means to feed in you know the information that we have, but then also use that as a concrete model to build out uh, or participate in projects to help expand our knowledge about early America um, as best we can. Well, I guess. We've talked quite a bit, actually. Um, we could probably talk for about another six or seven hours, as we usually do, but we should we should probably wrap it up. And I guess uh, let's close by, and I'll ask you this question. You know, if somebody wants to begin thinking about learning about digital history or jumping into this kind of work because they think they have to, because their job prospects will be enhanced by it, or... From a from just an intellectual standpoint, you know, so where is a good place to to begin? Well, I mean, it really depends on the type of work you want to do. You can start looking at our collections. Our digital collections are pretty cool. Look at the Scottish Papers. That's a project we're really proud of. Look uh, at the work being done by, as we've talked about several times today, the Digital Scholarship Lab at the University of Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the Roy Rosen, the Rosenzweig Center at George Mason. Yeah. They're doing incredibly cool work with tools primarily based on research tools. Um, and then, of course, there's you know a growing body of texts and things online, syllabi, that link to really cool... Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, ...works that are trying to sort of academically place digital history, as well as linking out to really just fun projects to explore. Yeah, I mean, uh, the availability of syllabi these days, you could almost just take a course yourself would actually be, without actually being enrolled in it. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And just trying to, I think there are other, uh, there's other sort of databases we can call them that are aggregating digital projects. Um, so I, I think a, a basic Google search uh, and looking for a variety of syllabi and looking at these major centers that are sort of leading the pack and mm-hmm. Matrix at MSU is a great oh, yeah. place to start Michigan too. State, yeah. Um, so th- and there's 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 opportunities I think yeah. just to sort of immerse yourself in the the projects that are coming out, yeah. which are I think sometimes overwhelming how many we have, and um, yeah, that's about all I can recommend. Yeah, I, mean, I was just thinking too, real quick. Uh, you know, Sarah Bond and Tom Keegan up in Iowa. Absolutely, uh, right, uh, the Pleiades project uh, for the ancient world, but then also. Um, and Tom's head of the the Digital Scholarship Center up there in Iowa. Uh, they're doing something studio, right? Digital, digital studio, digital yeah. Digital scholarship studio, studio or I think something is like the, that. Yeah. The correct term, but Mr. Google will help you get there. But um, you know, and, and Rosenwig Center, the Matrix, the folks out at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, in, you know, just googling, I think as you said, googling for syllabi, and you can get started. Yeah, and then of course. I'm always happy to talk to people. I'm sure you are too. And so, and really, never be afraid just to email a buddy and say, "How do I get started?" Because we, we like to chat about this stuff. We do a lot of pro bono talks too. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. get a lot of refugees to our door. <laughs> yeah, as long as there's you know, just, <laughs> is there's food and coffee, we'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> well, free, free food, coffee, and f- free expertise. Free expertise, exactly. <laughs> yeah, come by for a second opinion and a cup of coffee. Is that that legal commercial goes? All right, Dr. Moles, thank you very much. I think we'll wrap it up here, and um, we'll see what the law library does in the future. Well, we miss you, Jim. Well, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.